Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, my podcast. Uh, as always, I'm not a rabbi. I'm a spiritual director, but I'm not a rabbi. Um, and, you know, I often say if I was going to be a rabbi, I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. Uh, and today, I have someone who I'll be speaking to who is a rabbi, but he's not that kind of rabbi. So I think we're in a perfect circle here. Um, I, I met him originally uh, years ago. Uh, he's one of the founders of uh, an outreach, a beautiful outreach program called Vea Hafta, uh, and was uh, deeply involved in helping people uh, on literally on a street level to be able to say, you know, we could talk all we want, but it's service that matters, and, and he did it. Um, his name is Avram Rosenzweig. He is a rabbi, and uh, he is my guest. Hello, sir. Hello, rabbi. How are you? Hey, Ralph. How are you doing? I'm good. It's been a while since we've seen each other. We've both gotten more gray. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which, which is a good thing. It reflects perhaps more wisdom as well, eh? Well, God willing. I mean, I, I, I'm yeah. fond of saying to people, you know, just because you're older doesn't mean you're wiser. You do have to do the work, I think. But uh, we, That's could true. we could talk about all that. Um, yeah. So get me up to speed. Uh, you know, when we were interacting, you were very much uh, the driving force of, of Vea Hafta. Mm -hmm. uh, but a year ago uh, was sort of that closed. So what what put you in that position where you could move from being in it to advising it to saying goodbye to it? Right. Um, I, I was uh, very, very passionate about um, Via Hafta. And, and I, I was indeed the founder, um, started it up in 1996. We had our programming going in 1997 and I ran it for about 20 years. I, um, I just knew intuitively it was time to move on. Um, the organization grew beautifully and uh, we had all kinds of wonderful people working with us, great donors, great projects. And I was uh, limited in terms of where I could take it moving further. I often ask people, are you uh, an opening pitcher? Are you a middle innings pitcher or are you a closer? I'm an opener. Um, despite that, I stayed in the game for many years. And there just came a point where Via Hafta was growing. And as a founding director, I realized, listen, either I stay in here and it just doesn't grow the way I want it to in my heart, or I step aside and I do other things in my life. I allow someone else to take it forward. Um, and that's, in fact, what I did. I always felt, Ralph, that I wanted Via Hafta to outlive me, you know, and uh in fact, it's run now by Carrie Kozrick. She does a tremendous job. We're very good friends. I help her out where I can. Um, I, I just really, really felt strongly it was time for me to move on and do other stuff. I was very passionate while I was doing it, but it was just time to move on, you know? So something you just said there, though, was it, it wasn't going to go where you and your heart wanted it to go. Where did you want it to go? Listen, in, in my mind, I really felt that... Uh, I would take Via Hafta International. Now we did do international work and we did great work in places like Zimbabwe and, and, and Guyana and Haiti. We worked with Israel, et cetera, but really the, the brunt of our work and what Via Hafta is known for is our work here with the homeless in Toronto. Um, but I, I sort of have a limited capacity to grow it in that way. I'm a, I'm a small town guy and I operate uh, that way. Um, and I, I just felt really strongly I didn't have the ability to uh, to take it to bigger places. Carrie does. And um, I, I felt it was really the time just to move over. It was re it's really not more complicated than that. And the other thing, too, is I'm not an I'm not a born administrator. <laughs> I'm really not. Right. If you've ever run a shop and you're involved in hiring and firing and Excel sheets and all that nourish guide which is Yiddish for, you know, nonsense. Uh, <laughs> that's not my thing, Ralph. It's really not. Right. And so often I'd bemoan the fact that I, I really want to be a hands-on guy, sometimes one-on-one. -on -one. I didn't have that opportunity anymore as the executive director. So it was, it was time to do other stuff. 
So what did it teach you? What did that whole organization, what did the work on the street, what, what did it teach you? You know, when you're dealing with individuals who've had an extraordinarily hard life and perhaps do not have the blessings that you and I have, you, you realize very quickly a few things. Number one is you realize humility within people. I just got off the phone literally, Ralph, before you and I started this interview with a fellow whom I've known for a number of years. And I really don't know anyone who has much, as much tourists as this fellow, um, which is hardships. And he was crying on the phone with me and, and he's a grown man. He's actually a very strong man, but you know, he just stopped drinking recently. He uh, stopped taking opioids. And when you go through that process, your mind does clear, but the emotions come to the fore very often. And he, he breaks down regularly now. And I'm on the phone with this man, Ralph, and I'm thinking to myself, God, life can be so challenging. It can be so hard. That man's gone through so much. And I feel so strongly that I need to have such patience and respect for him. Listen so closely. If I can help, then I need to help. So what it's taught me is that uh, uh, the humility is very important in humankind. It's taught me that one must be strong in our life and in our world and that we have to be together. We have to be a unit. We have to be unified in order to get through it because life can be very tough, as you know. Did you, well, let's talk about humility, but also about whether or not when you devote yourself to that kind of a struggle, whether or not there are supports around you to continue doing it. So humility, <clears throat> I'll sort of go to the Musar uh, version of humility here and yeah. the idea that it's not about uh, making yourself smaller in the face of things it's knowing what place to take in a situation when to lead when to follow when to listen when to talk um, so when you talk about the, the humility um, the other factor when one is doing good work is how we can uh, swell up and believe Yes. You know, look at me, I'm doing great stuff. What are yes. you doing with yes. your life? So how yes. did you balance those different uh, urges in yourself? Because you started this as a younger man. And, you know, we, we, we can work more from ego than from uh, soul when we're when we're younger. So how, how did you how did that journey go for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, I thought I was pretty special. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I I think the best way to sort of position um, my answer is, you know, one of the ways that we have to raise money was through our galas. They were called Starry Nights Galas. And we would have keynote speakers such as Bob Geldof, uh, Mia Farrow, you know, Miriam Pearl, whose husband was okay. beheaded okay. Uh, by ISIS and um, Ellie Wiesel. So there I am sitting on the dais with them in some ways thinking of myself as a small town Kitchener kid, which is where my father, which is where I was born. By the way, just, just, just as a correction here. My father was a rabbi. I'm a son of a rabbi. Okay. Right. Son of many things, but son of a rabbi and uh, not a rabbi. <laughs> I don't have smith. I don't. So have, we're both uh, not, we're both not that kind of rabbi. <laughs> we're both not that kind of rabbi. Exactly. Together, Ralph. Together. Excellent, excellent. So, so I'm sitting there and Bob Geldof is making jokes and he's talking about me in front of hundreds of people. Uh, I think he called me the Jewish Jimi Hendrix because my hair is very often Afro-like in nature. And I'm getting a big kick out of this, walking through the crowds, off from this, off from that. Then afterwards, I would always leave and I would make an effort to be on my own. It was late at night and I would go into a coffee time. And I would... And, and I, inevitably I would see a bunch of men sitting there debating the world's ills, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, a, they have no idea who I am. How could they, why would they? I'm really, I'm, I'm known in the, in the via Hufta world, but not outside of it. And I'm listening to their conversation. And I'm realizing Eric, that we're all just kind of like that, just like neighborhood guys, you know, and it really put me in my place. And then the other thing, of course, Ralph, is when you work with people, who are uh, really put upon in life. Uh, as we discussed before, I became 
more and more and more humble. I really did. Like, I, I realized that like life is not riches. It, it, it's not wealth. It's not the materialism that you gather. It's, it's the people that you help. It's the people that you work with. And when you work with people who are very, very, uh, as I said, put upon, you quickly realize that life is so tenuous. Really, there's such a fine line between those who have and who have a lot and those who have very, very little. Um, and I and I and I woke up, so to speak, and I realized just just a just a normal, regular guy. That's all I am. And, and I do my best in life. You know, when you. When you work with somebody on the street. Yeah. Does it. In a way, some of it must be like being in the middle of someone drowning. How do you, so bronze medallion, they say, do not approach someone drowning from the front because they'll take your hair and pull you down so they can survive. How did you navigate that kind of caring without drowning? By the way, I learned that uh, about life-saving in Lubavitch camp when I was eight years old. And then I implemented it in Mexico. I actually saved the guy's life and it was good. I had learned it. Um, It's a, it's a really good question because you can be pulled down very, very quickly. I think one of the things that anyone in the field um, has to do is to create, as you said before, it's a family, you know, it's, it's a group of people who surround you and you surround them, right? You hold their hand and they hold yours. There were many times where I would come home at the end of the day and uh, be in tears at what I had seen uh, or what I was privy to, what we were working on. As I said before, we did a lot of work in Guyana, and Guyana is the Western Hemisphere's poorest country after Haiti. Um, and we would go deep into the rainforest and set up medical clinics and help people who had about a dollar's worth of medical care per year. We in Canada have about $1,500 worth per year um, on average. And uh, you can imagine a mother walking miles and miles to get to us, maybe one baby on one hip and another baby on another hip and begging us, you know, we Canadian Jewish doctors and nurses to, to save their child. These are really daunting things. And we had, I remember a child who came into one of our camps, one of our clinics who had fallen into a, a boiling pot of hot water. And uh, we, fortunately we had satellite phones and we were in touch with sick kids and we were able to save that child's life. But um, you really have to make sure that um, you defrag, if you will, that you speak to people on a regular basis about what you're going through and how you're feeling. And when a point comes where you either need a vacation or you need to step aside, and that's probably a piece of why it was time for me to step aside too, um, then you have to do it. You can't bullshit yourself and say, I'm, I'm, I can do this, I'm strong, I can get through it. Yeah, there, there are varying degrees of strength out there and you'll meet people in the field who are unbelievably powerful and strong, but everybody at some point breaks down and you have to be conscious and aware of that. And if you're not, someone tells you whom you trust, you need to listen to them. You know, I was thinking uh, for a second there just now that um, Steely Dan had a song called Kid Charlemagne right. and, and there's a line in it, you are obsolete look at all the white men on the street Good. and whenever I'm, I'm i'm walking around and I'm, I'm seeing people begging and i think what have we done like you know how, how can we walk past it or decide we like the pitch of this beggar but we don't like the pitch of this beggar uh how what what is it there must have been parts of you that were just like wanted to shake the society by the shoulders and go what are we doing Right. So when I first got into the nonprofit sector, uh, that would have been 1990. And I worked for the United Jewish Appeal and I did so for seven years. Um, my father was a rabbi and my mother was a rabbitson. And I grew up in Kitchener until I came to Yeshiva in Toronto uh, in grade nine. And I finished Yeshiva and then I went to Israel for a year and studied there. But the thing about my family, in particular, my father, was that he was an old-time rabbi, an old-time activist. So he used to bring people home and live with us, who would live with us. 
So I often say my mother was the real hero. Hmm. So we, we, we literally had people staying with us for a week, for a month, sometimes for a couple of years. And um, very often the people who live with us were challenging folk. <laughs> we had one, 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 one woman who, who stole my parents' visa and went downtown and sped it in some Jewish stores and they let us know. And we asked her why. She just said she never you know, had the opportunity to spend money like that. But that was her appreciation, you know. <laughs> But, but my parents never kicked her, kicked, kicked her out. I mean, they were really the real deal. Ralph. My parents right. were the real deal. So I came to UJ and I, I had what you might call um, sort of a chip on my, on my shoulder. It's like, you know, this is where I came from. I saw what was going on in the world at a young age. And, um, and I was privy to, 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 to the world outside of me, outside of us more so than my colleagues. Um, and I used to get really, really angry. I remember sitting around UJ meetings with my colleagues and just really uh, hitting them on the head with a hammer. <laughs> Come on, where are you? The Russian Jews are coming out. We need to take them in. We need to have them out, had our house at Sh for Shabbat and let's open up our doors. And they looked at me and they didn't quite know what I was saying because they were professional, you know, uh, uh, community workers. Finally, I looked around and I realized nobody was fighting back. <laughs> it was only me who was fighting. Right. And, and I told myself, I remember saying this to myself, okay, Avram, you know what? Uh, a, a boxer who's in the ring by himself, that's not a true box, uh, uh, not a true fight. So just stop. And, and at that point in time, what I started to do instead was I tried to influence people in the area of what I knew, what I had experienced in a softer, perhaps more loving way you know, and uh, kill people with sweetness and honey. And uh, to some extent that worked. But, you know, Ralph, I'm sure you're like this because of because of your life and what you've pursued. Sometimes I become acutely aware of the suffering in the world or in a given country like Ethiopia right now in Tigray. I have a friend there who keeps emailing me, telling me about the atrocities. And sometimes I'm so conscious of the suffering of these people, I can see it, I can feel it, that I really do want to go out there and beat up our community and say, let's get off our butts and let's do something real as opposed to speaking or articles and newspapers and all that stuff, which does have a place, but at the end of the day, it needs to be more. Yeah. You know, uh, I was talking to a rabbi down in uh, the United States, uh, Mordechai Liebling, who's a, an activist rabbi in, in Philadelphia. And we were talking about the idea that, you know, right now at synagogues and mosques and churches, there's a social action committee. Everybody has a social action committee. And that's great. Um, and their focus in the Jewish world will be to say, tikkun olam, repair of the world. Right. But, but we ended up with a conversation about before or at least at the same time as you have that in desire, there has to be tikkun hanefesh, repair of the soul. Because otherwise you bring the baggage to the fight, as it were, or to the, the cause. Uh, and maybe that stuff is really not helpful. Maybe it's polluting. So when you were talking about, you know, bang him over the head with a hammer, um, you know, I can see where a frustration would make a person go, for God's sake, do something about this already. But on the other hand, where does that where has that sat with you over the years the, the repair of your own soul to be able to help with the repair of the world right i found out not so long ago after spending years studying torah that, that not only is there the concept of ben adam lamakom which means my relationship with god and ben adam lechavero which means my relationship with my friends my community my family but there's a concept called Ben Adam La Atzmi. And Ben Adam La Atzmi means my relationship to myself. Right. So I discover this and I and I quickly realize there's very little talk about Ben Adam La Atzmi in the yeshiva world where I come from. Um, not entirely surprising because of how they approach life. But my Rosh Hashanah and my Yom Kippur started to change. Because uh, not, uh, I, didn't, I wasn't only doing all hates to develop my relationship with God more so. That, 
That's when you club yourself on the chest. Not I lie, only I cheat, I steal. Yeah. Right. I gossip. Right. I gossip. We all do all that stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. Not, not only to determine how I've been with my friends and my family, my community, how I can better myself, but I really started thinking about myself more so. Hmm. And, um, and that was a really healthy place to go. And it, with it, it was within a Jewish context. Your point is really well taken. I've often wondered about Sarah and Avraham, Sarah and Abraham. When Abraham and, and his wife were standing at the opening to their tent, and they were literally, I mean, the Torah tells us that they were literally waiting for someone to come by that they could help. Right? And, and of course, of course, three angels came by, but, and this wasn't long after Avram had gone through a circumcision. So clearly he was in pain. And I thought to myself, do they have a drive to help others? And is that necessarily a healthy thing all the time? You know, we're, we're very uh, complimentary about Abraham and Sarah there, sort of the model for hospitality, what it should be. But on the other hand, we've all met social workers who are far more intent upon sort of dealing with their own stuff than the person standing in front of them. And that's problematic. So I've been thinking about that over time as well. And, and I guess the bottom line is, as you're saying, is, you know, in the vernacular, work through your own shit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. It's yeah, because it keeps coming up, right? I it mean, does. Yeah, it's there. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's like so when you say, you know, I lie, I cheat, I steal. I, I, I cheat myself. I lie to myself. I steal yeah. from myself. Right. It's an entirely different thing than I, I, I have behaviors that outwardly to other people that are not what I would like, right. because cheating yourself is, it, and you know, the whole idea of sin. In, in Judaism isn't about a, 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 an evil act. It's about bad aim. Yes, bad right? aim, good. Yeah. Bad aim. Like I, you, I, I, the Buddhists would say an unskilled approach to life. Very good. Yeah. Right? And the skillfulness is what we what we want because the situations are going to come up all the time anyway. It's just a yeah. question of what can we do. So when you... So leaving Vehafta would be leaving a piece of identity as well. I am Avram Rosenzweig from Vehafta. For 20 years, you get to say that. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. But I find, you know, as we, we move into what I like to think of as the autumn of life, um, that the definition of who we were and who we are and all of those things are in transition. So what is, what that year of transition you've been through What's gone on for you? What, what are the things that are, have moved as pieces that weren't there before? Mm -hmm. um, I was a little bit lost. Um, I think I'm still a little bit lost. Uh, but Leonardo da Vinci had, I think, eight or ten rules that he lived by on a daily basis. As an example, you have to be physical every day. You have to work out. You have to sweat. Right? One of his rules was you have to embrace confusion. Tohu vavohu. Right? In the beginning, God created the world and he created it from tohu vavohu. Right? Which was, how would you, how would you define that? No uh, thing. There you go. Right? Yeah. yeah. Nothing. Yeah. I, I'm so, you know. Yeah, right, right. Right. So I, uh, I've, I've worked really hard to embrace my tohu vavohu, Ralph. <laughs> you right, know right right I, I really have like it's 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 actually extremely exciting while it's scary too to remove myself from that sort of the ahafta rubric and to say okay yeah for 20 years you were Avram from the ahafta and that's how i go over to metro here and i go shopping oh you're Avram from the ahafta right yeah that's correct i'm Avram from the ahafta right <laughs> Uh, but it's it's exciting to let go of that and to discover and or rediscover who I am at my essence. It's, it's as if I'm on a deserted island and there's nobody around to define me, no books, really nothing outside of me which says, okay, you're out from this, you're out from this. And now what I'm doing is I'm reaching deeply inside and I'm, uh, I'm discovering new pieces of myself. And that, that is a, a beautiful journey. I mean, I'm enjoying it very much. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was just talking to somebody earlier today who, and I, you know, I offered to them 
I felt that they had a yearning for certainty. And I said, you know, sometimes it, it might be good to stay confused. Mm-hmm. Right? right. The, the Chinese proverb to, to be uncertain is uncomfortable. To be certain is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we, we, we want an answer. You know, it's like the difference between a, a kind of searching in your spiritual life and a, and a certainty in your spiritual life. And we, we can see how that goes because it, it's when somebody tells me in detail what the afterlife looks like. And I'm like, come on. You're right. 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 <laughs> it's a ballpark guess at best. Come on. Yeah. Listen, I'm grateful. Thanks for telling me. But <laughs> really? Like, you yeah. know this? You yeah, know? exactly. Wow. Well, right. uh, do you have flyer points I can pick up for this? Because <laughs> I want a little visit. What's going to kill me? Um, now, you, so part of your redefinition, and I want to know how you got there, is this idea of becoming a purpose and meaning coach. How did that grow? over this last period of time? And how does it manifest itself now? I think one of the things that my parents uh, taught my sisters and myself was to be uh, cognizant, A, of somebody standing in front of you, as I mentioned before, and B, to be sincerely interested in who they are. And my sisters and I have always gone out of our way to spend a little bit of time you know, with the cashier at No Frills or the guy who runs the dry cleaners. Um, You know, you're in an Uber or you're in a cab. I'm sure you're like this. You probably strike up a schmooze with a guy or the woman driving. My parents taught us well in that way. And um, therefore, as I grew, as I got older, as my life developed, I, I, I really, really developed with that a fascination for humankind, people's behavior, um, who people are at their essence, you know, the core of their soul and their spirit. And of course, along came uh, Viktor Frankl, <laughs> you know, in the guise of um, some really good books. And he developed logotherapy. And essentially, logotherapy was and is a therapy which states that if you find meaning in your life, if you find purpose in your life, that in itself is therapeutic, right? Um, and that was, that's been my experience. So over the years, I have informally struck up conversations with many of strangers and asked them what it is that they're passionate about, what they do, what they love. And even if their answer, Ralph, is, well, I don't know, because you hear that from people. I don't mm-hmm. know. You dig a little bit and you probe and you remind people that we were all once children and we all had dreams, maybe to be a boxer. I wanted to be a boxer when I was a kid and a lawyer and a rabbi. And I think I want to be a taxi driver too. Uh, Everybody has dreams. And if you remind them that you did that, that they they may come to the fore. So I really wanted to uh, continue to work with people. And if I was able to give of myself and, and help them develop. And of course, the flip side to that is help myself develop. I I figured, okay, you know what, I'm, uh, I'm working things through and uh, I'd like to, try to coach people. Um, And then, of course, when you decide you want to become a coach, the question is, what kind of coach? And it made a lot of sense to me, based on what I just told you, to really work with people and help them discover and or rediscover uh, their passions and their meaning um, to work for it. Because I'll tell you the truth, it's always there. It's always there. And so far, Baruch Hashem, as they say, uh, it's been a good experience. So I come to you and I downplay my passions. You say, what are your passions? I go, well, you know, I mean, in a perfect world, you know, I'd love to do this. I'd love to do that. I, you know, I'd love to, to travel. Uh, you know, I'd love to paint. I'd love. Um, is that just the surface answer of I'd love to just not have to worry about my responsibilities in the world and just do something that it, whimsically is enjoyable do, do, do people often sort of start there well you know inevitably we get into conversations about their you know their their childhood and their, and their parents and their relationships um and there's a lot of peripheral stuff that turns out to be extraordinarily important in terms of they finding their path generally i work with people who have shown success in their life already hmm. 
I'm not, I'm not trained to do otherwise. I'm not trained to help people emotionally. That's not my training. Right, right. Um, but, but I am trained to listen and I am trained to hopefully hear at least somewhat. Um, and, and yes, there are people who do in fact respond. Well, yeah, in a perfect world. But, but again, as I said before, if you dig deeply and if you really create a, a, an environment that's trusting um, and you probe well, you and I have been trained to ask good questions, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've had your fair share of people saying, Ralph, you know what? No one's ever asked me that before. That's <laughs> a good question, right? <laughs> and then once you hear that, you feel you're on the right, on the right path. But it could take some time. Some coaches do two or three sessions with somebody, I generally find it's probably more important to do five or 10. Um, and there have been times where I have not taken a person down a road that they were comfortable with, but more often than not, we, we do help. I, I, I am able to help them find their path and, uh, and they do go on it and it, it's shown a lot of success. It's interesting because I, 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 uh, I did the Olive ordination program and spiritual direction, you know, to be a Mashpia. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like we're, we're kind of doing the same kind of work in some ways. I, I'm helping sometimes often I'm, I'm trying to reconnect people to their spiritual uh, yearning and trying to give them a framework that can offer them some sustainable ways of, of animating that part of their life because you know, a, a really nice walk in the woods and a, a, a nice buzzy feeling from that is is nice. And the next day it's back to, you know, mundane, kaboom, kaboom. So it sounds like we're both doing some holy listening, really. Right? Yeah, which, which again, I think we're trained to do. Like uh, you've been interviewing for years. You've had some high profile interviews. Um, I know your career and it kind of makes sense. This trajectory, I think, makes sense. It's not yeah. surprising that we're on it. Yeah, so here we are, and here and here are the people that that surround us in that. Um, when you think of the place that your Judaism has in your path right now, is it a central piece of of where you want to go still, or is it a part of things? But there's new things emerging as well. Right. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a very short history of my life. <laughs> I grew up in an Orthodox environment. I was the only son, the only rabbinical son in my family. I have four sisters. My sister, one of my sisters died this year. So I have three oh, sisters. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I went to Yeshiva and I studied Torah. Uh, and then when I left Yeshiva at 20 years old, after being there for six years, I gave up orthodoxy. And I basically gave it up because I I couldn't breathe. <laughs> I really couldn't breathe. Uh, it was There was a lot of imposition in my life when it came to halacha. As wow. you can imagine, being Jewish the only law. son of a rabbi, yeah. Jewish law, going to yeshiva, a very Haredi environment. That's the type of yeshiva that I went to, ultra-right wing orthodox. <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of room to breathe. There wasn't a lot of room to wear colors. I remember once in Jerusalem, I, I was attending yeshiva, a Haredi yeshiva, and I was wearing white pants. And someone came over to me and they said, Mazach Tachrichim. Tachrichim is Hebrew, and in English it means shrouds. Right. And, uh, and you I got the wrong this- holiday. You should have been. <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to be Kippur, and you're supposed to be wearing a shroud. What are you doing? Yeah, right. right, <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So there would be a lot of that. And uh, and I wanted to I wanted to test out the world. Like I wanted to try bacon. <laughs> it's very salty. I remember I that. liked it. No, I liked it. <laughs> it's good, but salty. And, yeah, yeah. And I remember the first year that I, I gave up my orthodoxy. I remember on Yom Kippur going to a Thai restaurant. Um, and, and, and of course there were all kinds of problems that came out of this. My family was not happy. My father was not happy, but that being said, I had to do it. And I had to, I had to, I I see myself as being somewhat of the world. Um, and I felt as though I was living in a shtetl. 
So for, for many, many years, I rejected so much of what I had learned. And I was out there uh, becoming a journalist, doing things that fascinated me, regardless of the halachic ramifications. And, uh, and I was really, really happy. And the more that I did this stuff, the happier it made me. Right? <laughs> I just felt free. Long and short of it, I became a father 15 years ago. And, uh, and one thinks differently about their life when, when, when they're responsible for a little one who eventually starts to get to be a big one, what they say, how they say it, what their value system is and so on. And that's basically what I had gone through. Um, and I started to take my Judaism more seriously, if you will. I started to look at it differently. Two years ago, I started up Dafyomi. Now, Dafyomi basically is a project or program whereby you study Talmud every single day for seven and a half years. And after seven and a half years, you complete the entire Shas, every single tractate that's out there. Um, this Shabbat, I'll be finishing my ninth Gomorrah. I've never finished a Gomorrah in my life prior to this pro, uh, process. As I started to learn Talmud, Ralph, um, I started to learn more Chumash. And I, studied, I started to learn Misilat Yisharim, which is Musar. I was learning yes. with my sister Naomi uh, before she passed away. We had a Chavruta. We would learn right. on a weekly basis together. Chavruta coming from the word friend. Right. We were learning friends, spiritual friends. And... Um, and my mind is opening uh, to what uh, was very, very closed before. I'm starting to see the brilliance of our peoplehood. Hmm. Um, and I'm starting to see the beauty within our Torah and our learning. I'm starting to slowly but surely figure out this puzzle, which we call Torah and Judaism. I have not embraced halacha. That has not changed. Um, but I am ensconced in learning Torah in a in a way I've never been before. And that's taking me down a road. I'm not exactly sure where that road is going. Sometimes I get off and I'll stay for a night in an inn. <laughs> <laughs> With you a know? cheeseburger. Yeah. yeah, a cheeseburger, right? <laughs> but I'm going somewhere and I've never been so proud of being a Jew. Wow, isn't that interesting? Yeah. I yeah. guess it became your decision, not someone else's decision. I mean, when you're a young man, and it's, you know, in, in Spanish, as a, a Spanish-Moroccan, um, the word for sin is pecado. And you heard it about every 14 minutes uh, right. when you were a kid. Pecado niño, don't do that. Pecado niño. So everything became what you couldn't do. And especially in a highly individualistic society, the idea that there was a collective constriction, that you had to be part of something where everybody was on the same page. Mm -hmm. Taken to its extreme, the Haridim, and the whole idea of, you know, everyone must look the same, do the same, be the same in the service of, of communal spirit and God um, would be uh, uh, suffocating. I came from a traditional home, not an Orthodox home. So it was, you know, if you asked my mother, she'd just say, what do you mean, why do we do this? Just do it. If you don't do it, we'll forget how to do it and it'll be gone. Right. And then I go to my Eastern European, my Ashkenazi friends for a Passover Seder where they'd have this freewheeling conversation about freedom. And it'd be like, are we going to finish the Haggadah? Or are we we're just going to talk because we got to get through this and yeah. you can't miss stuff. So everybody gets their own stuff that gets rolled in and then you have to push, move back. And then there is that thing, that retrieval mechanism called children. Where you say, what am, I, what, am I, what am I passing on? And then you watch them go, nah, this is, this is your path, go for it. And then they have to find their way. So, you know, it, it's so interesting when that happens. So, you know, Ralph, I, I, made, I made a huge mistake with my son. My father had imposed so much upon me. God bless his soul. I understand why. And then I started doing the same thing with my son. Hmm. And, 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 and I have friends come up to me, they go, Avram, this is what you rejected. You rejected that behavior towards you. Why are you doing it to your son? I said, no, 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 it's not me. <laughs> they said, no, no, that's you. You're doing it. And I looked at myself and I said, you're right. And I stopped. So now I'll make Shabbat table on Friday night. Kiddush, Lechem, all the things we do on Friday night. I'll, I'll say to my son, you know what? This is going to be really nice. Let's do it together. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. And I let him be. 
Yeah, it's tough. Because it's the tough. other thing is when they say, uh, look what you're doing, you say, this is what I know. <clears throat> this is how I was brought up. And I don't have a roadmap. I mean, part of being a parent is if you can do 30% less of what wasn't a good idea, then you're getting somewhere. I would say so. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I mean, in, in our culture, uh, whacking your kid on the shoulder or the, or the back of the head was grammar. It wasn't beating. It was, I'm trying to tell you something, you know, yeah. that, that wake sort of, up, wake yeah. up. What is yeah. wrong with Picado Nino? So, you mm-hmm. know, that became a thing. So then I have to go, okay, that, I won't be doing that. I won't be getting physical with my kids. Bonus. I just moved the chain a little. Yes. So interesting. So, so your kid is going to have their journey. Uh, your journey is now, I, I'm not going to say in flux, has evolved. What, when you, when the, occasionally the confusion clears and you can sort of get the glimmers of where you're going, where are you going? What, what do you see? I'm going to go directly to this. I, 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 when I when I leave this world, Admeva uh, Esrim, as we say, besudur and sfonset, 120, right? I know Yiddish is your mother tongue. I know that as a Moroccan Jew, right? Um, yeah, when we're eating gefilte fish, we always speak Yiddish, always <laughs> with some dolphino. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> honestly, I. I my my the end game as they call it is I want to yeah I know I I'm not sure how this sounds but honestly Ralph I want to do as much good as possible I want to I want to really help people uh, grow into themselves and live a life that's theirs that they're supposed to be as as best as they possibly can in the way that makes sense to them um, sometimes I actually think about keeping Shabbat. I haven't kept Shabbat since I'm 20 years old. And I often consider the idea that Avram, keep one Shabbat. Just keep one Shabbat. See how it goes. You have to understand something. I felt choked during Shabbat. Yeah. How much more so on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. I couldn't breathe. Almost right. physically, I couldn't. Right. So to go back to it is a, is a tough thing. And I really have to go back on my own conditions, as you were saying before. That's something that I want to do. Even crazier... I've uh, thought recently about formalizing my Torah learning because I learned quite a bit. And I thought how interesting it would be if, 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 if it could become a program because there's wonderful Torah programs out there. Um, the Hartman Institute is, is yeah. one example and uh, et cetera. Uh, I mentioned to a couple of friends that who knows, maybe one day I'll go for smicha. And of course that's rabbinical ordina- uh, one's rabbinical ordination. Um, so I'm starting to think in those terms right. and I'm not quite sure, um, where, where I'm going to go with it, but, uh, something seems to be fleshing out. <laughs> Very interesting. So, yeah. okay, let, let's, let's go down the rabbit hole, shall we? So yeah, we, we end, we go towards Micha, ordination. What have you had a, an instinct of what school of, of rabbinic learning you would be in? Would it be reconstructionist, renewal, reform, conservative? What would it be? Yeah, you're deep into that rabbit hole you are. Yeah. Um, because that is a challenge that I have. When I was looking for a shul for my son and I to go to a synagogue, here's what would happen. One Shabbat, we would go to Shar Shemayim, which is an Orthodox shul. Right. Well, that was too orthodox. Another another week, we would go to Darfei Noam, which is here on Shepherd Avenue, which is Reconstructionist. Can't take that seriously. <laughs> right? And I know Rabbi Tina. She's lovely, and she's wonderful, and she's a great rabbi. Right. And this went on and on and on, and I just couldn't find my place, much to the chagrin of my son. Hmm. And um, so that is a really, really good question and something that I'm still... Uh, trying to figure out. I, I can't see myself getting a rabbinical ordination and going out for a cheeseburger. I don't see that. But right. the strange thing, Ralph, is and maybe you have some insight uh, in, this, in, in, in this area. 
I'm not drawn to be halachic. I'm not. I'm not drawn to wake up in the morning and put on tefillin, make brachot, blessings on all of my food, and Friday night comes and I shut everything down. I understand the peacefulness of Shabbat and I, I do feel it inside. But in terms of the ritual itself, I'm not highly ritualistic. So it's a challenge. On one hand, <laughs> if I go the reconstructionist uh, route, I'm going to be very crass about this. Don't hold me to this. I don't take it seriously. It's not serious enough for me. It doesn't go through that whole process of, okay, here's a halachic question. Let's look in the Talmud. Let's look in Maimonides. Let's work it through. Let's see what the rabbis say over the generations. It's more like, well, let's move with the times. It's not enough for me. On the flip side, the Haredi world is way too much for me. And it doesn't allow me to, as I said before, breathe. So is there confusion within all this? Absolutely. Um, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this yeah. or how to work. But I am on a road. And that's a good thing. That's so interesting because there's so, you know, it's a diamond. You just turn it and there's a different facet, right? right. Like, you know, one of them is I want rigor. I want this to have a gravitas. And right. the other one is I want embodied experience, right? Yeah. So I'm in the renewal movement, right? So we do a, a retreat called JMR, Jewish Men's Retreat, every year in Connecticut. And every, almost everybody in this is uh, American, uh, except two of the rabbis who run the, the service on the Friday and Saturday night are both Canadians, Mark Biller and Sean Zevitt. So, oh, yeah. Okay. Right. So, uh, we, and, and Sean, for instance, you know, got smicha from uh, Reb Zalman, uh, Shakhtar Shalomi, but he also is a Reconstructionist rabbi and he, and he has a synagogue in Philadelphia, uh, Mishkan Shalom. So it, it's so interesting because for me, what I found there was that when we get together, you know, 100 men, um, there are all different levels of observance and, and, and all different levels of, of the profundity of their book Judaism, but there is a commonality of spirit amongst these people uh, where some men get up and dance uh, in the middle of a couple Shabbat Friday night service. And, and, and I remember I took one of my sons and I said, look, guys are going to get up and dance. It, it, that doesn't mean you have to get up and dance. There's not one, they're right and we're wrong if we're sitting you know, and I play drum while we're in in, in the, so it, it has a, a meaning for me. We do things like when you go up for an aliyah at the Torah, um, you can have one person who puts their 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 talis on, on the Torah, but then there's 15 men behind them, one hand on the shoulder of each man all the way back. And I think to myself, what interests me is innovation in my spiritual life. That doesn't mean I have to choose I'm on this team or that team. It is what is the best innovation for my experience of my spirit, but also for other people to know that they have permission to be what they're going to be. So we'll have somebody who's got to fill in on on a, a Sunday morning, you know, at the retreat and somebody else who has never put to fill in on, but they're in the same place, you That's know, great. kind of doing the same dance. So I, but I totally hear the, the 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 struggle that you that you talk about because if you grow up in an Orthodox home, it's it's in the DNA that there is even though you're saying I will not do the, all these things I've been told I have to do, you can't stop yourself from thinking there's a, a right way and a wrong way, and you're yes. doing the wrong way. Yes, very much so. Right, and that can kill you because you're like, but I don't yeah. want to do the right way. Right, right. <laughs> but right I'll, 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 I'll tell you an interesting thing in light of what you what you're speaking of. You know, going away on that conference for the last five or six years. You know, I've taken a group of uh, thirty or forty uh, Jews, probably non-Jews as well, into the forest here at Earl Bales Park on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we, we've we've gone deep down a trail, and at the end of that trail are these huge rocks. It's almost biblical in nature. Like the story of yeah. Jacob right now is in the Torah where he <laughs> lies down with all the rocks around his head. It's almost like that. And we sit on these rocks and um, basically I facilitate a Rosh Hashanah and a Yom Kippur service. Now, we do sing songs like Unatana Tokef. We do sing Avinu Malkeinu. My favorite. Who, 
who wouldn't exactly yeah, exactly you know we'll sing it at the end row yeah. and, uh, and, but we talk a lot about introspection we talk a lot about our relationship with others we talk a lot about our relationship to the spirit however anyone defines it right it's about an hour and a half and it's by no means is it halachic if a from jew came in there on rosh hashanah like a very you know sort of haredi jew they would laugh at me um i've had that experience but the truth of the matter is the people who go say, number one is, I don't like going to Shul on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Right. I don't like sitting there for six hours, 10 hours, 15 hours. I don't understand prayer. I can't read Hebrew. Right. So my message to them is prayer comes in different forms. When my sister's husband was murdered, she couldn't she couldn't pray. And some, some rabbi very wisely said to her, tears are prayers, prayers as well. And, and that helped her get through it. She would sob and she would feel as though she was having some sort of communication with, with God. So I bring that to my service and I feel so fulfilled at the end of it. I really do. Yeah. And thank God the people who attended also feel very fulfilled. Beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I, I, I tend to think that a person's life is their prayer. Right. Like if you looked at everything that you've done and been through in your life, it is your prayer, yes. right? Your 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 call, your yearning, your 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 presence is all in there, uh, and all the things like some of the things you're you're talking about the loss of your sister, the the loss of a, uh, a brother-in-law, um, that's part of the prayer, you know. Uh, I have a friend who does wilderness Torah in California. And and he just takes people out into the desert, literally the desert. And, and can you imagine how powerful it is to be doing the desert cool. story in the desert, right? That's very cool. Yeah, and he's a renewal rabbi. He he, he had smicha in, in in the Olive Ordination Program, but you know, uh, the more you, you talk, the more I think. Does it matter? Whether or not you get the the shingle that says I'm a rabbi. Because a rabbi is a teacher. It, it, it's not just a, a vocational, you know, business card. It, it, it's a way of being. And when you describe that service, I think, well, you're a rabbi. I mean, you're you're leading the service. You're creating a container for people, right? And that's what a rabbi has to be able to do: is to create a container in which people can can uh, be free to be. Yes. Right. And it's not like, and by the way, you're, why are you wearing white pants? Just, yes. So, Good one. Take, take a breath. <laughs> take a breath. They're you white. know, uh, uh, Ralph, I've always, uh, I'm giving a class tonight to a conversion class. My dear friend, Ellie Rubenstein and Rabbi Yossi Saberman started right. up, a, started up a conversion class of all denominations. Nice. So if you want to convert through orthodoxy, there's a place for you in this class. If you want to convert through reconstructionist Judaism, there's a place for you. So tonight I'm giving a, a class on Jewish identity and I feel perfectly comfortable with it. I feel as though I've done my work on it and I have something to present. I'm going to work with the people who, who are on the call uh, to help develop the, 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 the thesis. Um, but I don't feel as I used to, I don't feel like I'm faking. Right. Um, that's a big piece. I've come a long way that way. The, the other the other point I wanted to mention you before you're right you're 100 right I don't need smicha you know at the end of my days but I have a fascination with scholarship mm. my my father Ralph was a bibliophile so I was about had, to say what a coincidence maybe yeah. your father was like that <laughs> yeah maybe eh? I never thought of it right <laughs> but I mean he had 10,000 books and sporum Jewish books. And you know the Talmud, they're big, heavy books. Yeah, my yeah. Monica's big, heavy. And every Pesach, my sister and uh, sisters and I would dust each and every book and we'd get a penny a shelf, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, scholarship was in my DNA, even though I was not a very good student. So now I'm becoming a better student. And I think the, the, the whole smicha discussion or idea that I'm having with myself, 
and now you, um, is, is more so just a real appreciation for scholarship. I know the Marty Luxons of the world. I know people who are brilliant and, and just so erudite when it comes to Torah learning and life. Dr. Label Zoberman, he's not only is he a Torah scholar, he knows Greek uh, mythology. Um, he understands the sciences. It's a pleasure to spend time with these people. So I think that's what's drawing me to that idea of smicha. So there's a very interesting thing because for me, what keeps me away from something like that yeah. is a rabbi gets up and they're doing a sermon, the Devar Torah, and they go to the, the rabbinical go-to. This word, the three-letter root of this word that says chicken is really water. And when yeah. we think of water, and I just yeah. think, and everybody's on the way out the door in yeah. their head. But if somebody says to me, what is it that makes the Pharaoh harden their heart? What is it about the tyrant Pharaoh inside you that hardens your heart to, to freedom? Where is the, so I think in metaphors, I think in, 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 in the personal struggle of our lives through those biblical stories and through other pieces. So the problem sometimes for me with rabbis is um, I don't want an academic experience here. I want a, a spiritual experience, a heart-to-heart -heart experience. And these pieces that I talk of, you know, uh, you know, why did Jacob, why is he sleeping on a rock? I mean, his head is on a rock. It's not a Tempur-Pedic rock. It's a rock. It's, you know, <laughs> why, why does he have to, after it's over, have a wound that, that will, is permanent? These are the things where they go, okay, so let's, let's now, yes, there are great sources for, for in, um, interpretation. Another problem I would have with that, for instance, would be, uh, hey, wait a minute, every single person you've referred to is a, is a man who has an idea about this. So I'm missing female wisdom, Shekhina wisdom throughout this conversation, because I'm in my books and my books are men talking to men as men. And so for me, I like to be free of those, those pieces. Uh, I would love to have more um, knowledge to draw on, but the emotional IQ of a spiritual experience and, and a sermon to me is, is deadly important. It, it, it's, it's why we, we bother, you know, why, why people will actually sing a song in Hebrew it, you know, Avinu Malkeinu. And then I'll walk up to them and go, do you know what that means, by the way? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, uh, no. Mm -hmm. And I think, who cares? Mm -hmm. What do you feel when you're singing? Oh, I remember every year. I remember the sorrow of this song. I remember Kol Nidre. I just think, oh, this is a chance to, to stop and breathe and be in my life and, you know, share compassion. Do I know what the words mean in English? No. I mean, occasionally I'll read them and forget them, but no. So that balance between, you know, the scholarship and, and the emotional landscape to me, you know, I hope you keep that, right? I hope you keep that because otherwise we get very good at, at, at knowing more than the other guy. Well, I think, you know, I, I read a beautiful piece from the uh, dean of Yeshiva University, um, who basically said that, you know, in the old days, when my father was a rabbi, um, homiletics were a real big deal uh, in, 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 in Dvar Torahs and speech giving. In other words, a lot of storytelling. The story uh, is told. A story is told. Yeah. And then over time, what's happened is, in particular in Orthodox shuls, is the rabbis have move towards what, what well, let's call it scholarship. It's like, it, it, it's, uh, you know, uh, how much schach should you have on your sukkah, the bushes that you put on the yeah. top of your, the booth, you know, the holiday of booths, how much should you have? And there's an entire Talmud on that. And I, I studied that Talmud and it goes back and forth for pages upon pages upon pages about discerning what is the right amount of schach can you see through it? Is there enough shade? Is there too much shade? Another guy's in the corner yelling, you call that a cubit? That's not <laughs> schmuck. Right. That's not a cubit. 
<laughs> right. But what I what I what I've what I've learned over my uh, Talmud learning is what I've what I've dis- discerned is that indeed in many ways God is in the details, right? And I think strangely enough, in many ways, that is the thing that preserved us. You know, there are so many ta- Talmudic scholars in simple synagogues all over the world. You don't have to find the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, to find the Jewish scholars, the people who know how to answer very difficult halakhic questions. They're everywhere. And because they're so ubiquitous, um, the Jewish world has become very, very rich. You don't need to go far to figure out how to approach this having to do with Judaism. What should a chuppah look like? What are the halachic uh, responsibilities of a, of a rabbi who's writing a ketubah, you know, the, the certificate marriage, for yeah. marriage and so on. Judaism takes these things very, very seriously because of the fact that, as I said, God is in the details, that the minutia of life is the thing very often that carries us. You and I have both studied journalism. We both being journalists, we know that the finest journalists are those who have studied their craft. Right. Right. And now sometimes that boils down to telling a story really well, but you have to know how to say it. Sometimes you become very soft. And that's the craft. But the art is keeping your eyes open as a journalist when others close their eyes. Yeah, as they good. turn away, you have to keep looking, witnessing. So with with rabbinics, I think it's some of it is the same because, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say what you just said, because. There's the part of you that says, you know, the detail and the halakhic is is what keeps us alive. And then in the next breath, you say, but I can't do it. Right. right? I, it's not for me. It, it just rubs me the wrong way that I've got to do everything exactly this way. You know, I mean, it turns into fetish at a certain point. It can. No, it yeah, can. Absolutely. Yes. And it, and not, it does, not does for many. But it no, but it does for many because mm-hmm. at that point, it's about uh, how right am I doing this as opposed to I'm doing this and that's what's right. So it, it, it kind of gets nuts. Listen, Ralph, my sister said to me yesterday, she has a halachic shaila. She has a question of Jewish law for her rabbi. I said, what is that? She said that she went to her dry cleaners. She gave them uh, their, her beautiful tablecloth that she uses on, on Yom Tov, on the, on the Jewish holidays, and he lost it. So she asked her, Rav, what is my responsibility as a Jew halachically what am I able to ask for before I even hear what he's offering me? Am I able to go in there and say, well, you know what? I, I would have very much appreciated if you'd return the money that it's going to cost to buy a new one because I'm not going to buy a used one. I, I need a brand new one for my Jewish holidays. And she takes her Jewish holidays very seriously, you know, mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. them beautiful for God. Mm-hmm. Or no, is it that I've had this Jewish, I've had this tablecloth for three years. There's three years wear on it. There's wine stains on it, right? Right, right. And therefore, no, 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 no. I'm not going to ask for $300. I can only ask for $200. She does it in a beautiful way, my sister. And she's very authentic about it. And she's very real about it. It's not a fetish for her. It's something which is very, mm. very spiritual in nature. And she takes it very, very seriously. Right. And it's grounded in ethic, too. Very yeah. much so. Right. Very, and she's a fine, good person, right? Right. So that you, you want to know what the best thing to do is not... What is the uh, what is the codified piece that says you got to do this? You can't do that. So, it, but it, it's also interesting. All right, I could talk to you forever. We're, we're, yeah, me too. So yeah, we're, we're gonna we're we're gonna start a wisdom school together. That's what we'll do. <laughs> wow. Won't be the administrator though, Ralph. No, no, that. neither of us. <laughs> we need that other person to go. Okay, Get listen. Someone else. Can you? Um, somebody said something about an Excel spreadsheet. That, <laughs> I'll start crying if we do an Excel spreadsheet. I've never heard of it. <laughs> Curriculum, I'm all over it. But the Excel spreadsheet, I don't want to do. I'm there. All right. Um, Avram, you have disappeared from the camera, but I'm there you are. Um, I want to thank you very much for doing this. And uh, I do want to keep in touch. I think there's a lovely journey that you're on. And it's so much that you've done that has been so good and so, so walking the walk of of life and caring about people and you know um all the beautiful things that have been passed on to you and that you're passing on uh it's just been a pleasure to just catch up and figure out 
where you've been and where you're going. So thank you so much for doing this with me. Yeah, no, and I just I just wanted to add, let's just do our Merv Griffin thing here for a second. You know, I'm also fascinated by the road that you're on. It's really, really something like when I see your Facebook posts nowadays and, you know, you talk about your spiritual journey. Um, I love when I see people who go off on a different sort of uh, a journey or a different road than one might suspect, you know, <laughs> and, and to see you go down this sort of rabbinic or quasi rabbinic sort of uh, trail, I find it fascinating. And, and what I find even greater is that people are really responding to you beautifully. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's You're putting yourself out there, and people are saying this is good, Ralph. This is yeah, good. Yeah. 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 No. I, I. This book I've written. Uh, I thought he was dead. You know, a spiritual memoir, and I thought, you yeah. know, as I'm writing it, I'm thinking, I don't know. So, so people are going to look at this and just go, "What? Yeah. Well, you? Come on!" Yeah. And I right. thought, no, you got to do it. You got. You got to just. Uh, you got to jump and grow wings. I mean, it's the way it works, right? I'm not shun. It's just got to keep walking in the water. We'll see. What Dive happens. right into the sea. Dive yeah. right in. Pushed yeah. in or walked in. I don't know, but I don't care. Right. right? right. Very good. So thank very you good. for that. Very kind words. Thank you. You're All right. Welcome. You take care. You uh, too, folk, Ralph. Thank you. Uh, folks, that's it for Not That Kind of Rabbi. I'm Ralph Ben Mergi. Avram Rosenzweig has been my guest. How can people get in touch with you, by the way? So uh, they can get in touch with me at avram.rosenswag at gmail.com. That's A-V-R-U-M dot Rosenswag, R-O-S-E-N-S-W-E-I-G at gmail.com. Yeah, so don't make the mistake of Z-W, Rosenswag. Yeah, Go for sister. Rosenswag. And Good, get it thank right. you for pointing yeah. that. Thank I know you. it's like Ben Murgy, believe me, it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, my book, uh, I Thought He Was Dead, is available now, Indigo. Amazon, uh, local bookstores will order it for you. And if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash NTKR and uh, look for my Not That Kind of Rabbi. My website is ralphbenmergie.ca and I have spiritual counseling there as well. So take care of each other and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Avram. Thank you.